Mac Observer's Math Geek Gap, episode 600, for Sunday, April 10th, 2016. Uh, Greetings, folks. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab, the show that's like car talk for Apple geeks. You send in your questions. We try to answer your questions. We share your cool stuff found. We share your tips. We share our tips. And the goal is for each of us to learn at least three new things each and every time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include two very longtime sponsors, which is actually kind of nice and fitting for episode 600. Barebones Software at Barebones.com and Gazelle at Gazelle.com. We'll talk more about both of those later in the episode. Here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, John O'Brien. Happy 600, my friend. I was going to say 600, yo, yo, yo. But... <laughs> you could say that. I, I, as it turns out, you did. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, these base 10 I, numbers are fun, right? Um, 600 has no special significance in, in my life. I mean, it obviously it's another, another hundred, which is, I mean, it's all great. Don't get me wrong. But, um, I, you know, as we were thinking about, well, should we do something extra special for show 600? It's like, I, 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 as I often do, I come back to, well, maybe, but really let's just focus on what we do best and, uh, and, and what you know, what people come here for, which is us sharing tips and what I just said, answering questions and all of that good stuff. So maybe at the end of this, we do have another sort of uh, uh, more significant to me, more significant milestone coming up. And that is on June 13th, when we will celebrate our 11th year of, or 11 years or tw- the beginning of our 12th year of podcasting. So, uh, so I, you know, but we, but I, we, you know, we've talked about maybe, maybe at the end of the episode here, John, we can, we can shine up our crystal balls a little bit and, and peek to the future a little, we'll see, we'll see where we get, I just, you know, does that work for you? Yeah. 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 That works for me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's go to, uh, let's go to some tips. And in fact, as we often do, we will take some tips from the past. Because uh, there were a couple of topics we brought up in 599 that um, that people had some comments on. Bukaru says in show 599, somebody was saying that their iPhone was six months past the warranty and that it was acting up. I think it's the same for U.S., but here in Canada, if you paid for your iPhone with a credit card, even with a contract, the credit card company offers you offers to double the warranty up to one year more. So an iPhone is covered in that way up to two years. I was reimbursed for a repair of a MacBook Air and my iPhone 5 that way. It's something to consider and even makes Apple Care a bit less attractive. And it's free with most credit cards. And, and you're totally right. It, it depends on your credit card more so than your country of residence. So, uh, yeah, check your credit card's warranty extension stuff because Apple gives you a one-year warranty on, uh, on, on your device's and your credit card company may well extend that by a year, up to a year, and in, in many cases, and and it um, it 
they will still cover it if you're paying it in an installment plan, as long as those installments are all going to your credit card. So whether, you know, if you're paying uh, through your cell carrier or whatever, as long as you're paying your bill with your credit card, that typically still qualifies you. You don't have to necessarily pay for it all at once. So great advice. And, you know, one of those things, so many of us, myself included, uh, always forget about. So thanks, Bookaroo. Good stuff. Yeah. And there's um, some other features that are nice too. So actually uh, the Amex that I have recently had an offer saying, hey, if you use your Amex to pay your cell phone bill, we'll, we'll give you a small discount for a couple of payment periods. It's like, okay. Yeah. I understand their goal. They, of course. <laughs> they, they want the, you know, they want the percentage versus whatever other card I put on it. So that's a, that's a nice incentive. And I'm almost certain that, yeah, American Express um, typically does the warranty extension. Yeah. Yeah. You got to And you got to yeah. check your card. Big T in the chat room at MacGeekGab.com slash stream is saying, make sure to check the details for your particular card because different, even, even among, you know, a, a an Amex card uh, or the Amex card family, each one is going to deal with this differently because they, they all have different partners and, and things like that. So make sure you check the, the details of your card. So, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, and another feature, um, I haven't really taken advantage of it, though they keep mentioning it to me, but uh, I have a city card, and they actually have a price match mm-hmm. feature. Most cards where, will, yeah. Yeah, where you, you have to actively, I guess, you know, say, okay, you know, find, uh, and, and I would imagine it would apply to Apple stuff uh, or anything. If, yeah. if, if you find a lower price within a certain amount of time, they'll, they'll give you a refund. Yep. It's like, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, it works for sure. All right. Um, also from five ninety nine, uh, Tom says you discussed, uh, receiving a continuing requests to sign into iCloud. Yes. The, the iCloud login issue that, that seemed to have cropped up right around the time of 10.11.4. Uh, Tom writes, I experienced this on a 27 inch 2013 iMac with Al Capitan, of course. Uh, and the, and he got an, un, you know, the unexpected error dialogue box, uh, came up after clicking. Okay. A dialogue box appeared requesting an iCloud sign in, and it was always unsuccessful. I found a solution on the Apple forums, but decided to try Apple tech support and see how they would approach the, the problem over a one hour period of multiple phone calls. Apple had me do three things. Try to sign into the Mac App Store directly, and that was unsuccessful. Create a new user account and try that new user to sign into the Mac App Store directly. For for Tom, that was unsuccessful as well. The call ended, and the Apple tech called back about a half hour later and instructed Tom to delete the network interface P list. And I'll I'll point out where that is, and that did it. So it's in uh, the root level of the hard drive library preferences, system configuration, network interfaces, P list. And that helped for Tom. Uh, that, that feels like it relates to that whole uh, bad ethernet driver thing that Apple pushed out where they invalidated the text. And, and maybe when they, even though it was revalidated, the interface itself was screwed up. So resetting your interface, if, if you're having the problem with multiple user accounts, then you know it's a system-wide issue and Tom's solution might be it. So again, that's Macintosh hard drive library preferences or whatever your hard drive is. It it doesn't necessarily have to be Macintosh hard drive, but library preferences, system configuration, network interfaces, plist, delete that and, uh, and see how it goes. So thank you, Tom. Yeah, good stuff. Nice. 
Didn't work for me though. No, you're, well, your problem was user account specific. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Keith has, uh, has another one, uh, another thing to add to this, uh, to this discussion. He said he had the same problem. And he says, I remember having the problem last year when I logged into the browser, I was reminded that I had two factor authentication turned on. So I disabled two factor authentication by logging in with my browser. I was then able to log in on my Mac with no problems. Once I got in on my Mac, then I could re-enable two-factor and had no problems either. So that's, uh, I, you know, I, anything's possible. Do you have two-factor enabled, John? No. Okay. So that wasn't your problem either. But, uh, but again, you know, kind of adding all these things together, it, uh, it's helpful. One last one on this issue from Alex. Alex writes, said, uh, I recently set up a new MacBook for a family member. We configured it as a new machine. And when we tried to create a user account connected to iCloud, we kept getting server errors from Apple. We were unable to create the iCloud account linked. So I had to make a local only account. It turns out the battery was completely dead and the system time was set to the Epic time of, you know, January 1st, 1970 and Apple's servers were rejecting it. Once it had synced over the network time uh, servers, everything started working again. So this is interesting. Um, security often relies on your computer clock, not necessarily being exactly the same as the clock that uh, of the uh, server it's trying to connect to when it's negotiating the, the security stuff, but it requires it to be within a range. And if you're outside that range, then uh, the two computers just won't negotiate the security um, certificates back and forth correctly. I, I think we've talked about that on the show before, John. Yeah. And this reminds me that this actually did come up recently for uh, uh, another purpose, but uh, some people were complaining that some of their OS installers were not working anymore. And it was uh, for a similar reason. And I think the workaround. So, so it was because I think the, uh, especially in some of the older OS installers, the certificate expired. So mm. it wouldn't run. And I think the workaround, either try to you know find a newer one, uh, but the workaround was to actually, I think, go to the command line and set the date to a date before. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, because, right, the certificate is valid for a, it, there is a start date and an end date for the certificates. And so you have to be living within that period in order for the cert to be even uh, called upon. Yeah. Ah, that makes sense. I like it. Yeah, I'll dig around, but but it was something that, that all of a sudden everybody was like, hey, my old installers aren't working. Why not? And it's like, well, because they... <laughs> yeah, try the date. Yeah. But I, don't think it, but I don't think the installer said, oh, sorry, you know, it's an expired certificate. It gave, you know, a typically right, right. cryptic error message. Kind of like the uh, error logging into the Apple ID server. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, like, exactly. yeah it okay. doesn't work. Yeah, like for me, it's like, okay, tell me more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it wasn't even, it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm still going to, you know, I have a backup and I'm still going to hammer away at this. I want to figure it out. It, it, it's, it's a personal geek challenge because I know there's a way to fix it. I just don't know. We don't know yet. what it is yet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Good. Um, moving, well, <laughs> moving on in topics, but still related to last week's show. Uh, but yet another tip from Scott. 
Hey, John and Dave, this is Scott. I'm an ACM from Los Angeles. You had a, or Tim, as you referred to me in the last episode. Uh, on 599, you had uh, pointed out that you like the lower frequencies better for your home. That gets better throughput or better uh, uh, signal strength. That's not necessarily to do with uh, the interference from other Wi-Fi devices. It could also be the materials that are your home is and studio are built of or the materials that are in between the access point and the device you're listening to. So as the frequency increases, it passes through materials differently, and that could affect throughput. All right, you guys. Thanks for doing such a great show, and don't get caught. <laughs> Thanks so much, Scott. Yeah, you're totally right. It could be just something to do with my house and not have anything to do with the fact that um, uh, uh, I can't think of it. Airdrop signals on channel 149. And, and you know, that was sort of my um, my working theory in the last episode. But you're right. It could be anything. Uh, yeah. So cool. Thank you for uh, thank you for that. It's always always important to remember that Wi-Fi, you know, it's got to go through a lot of things, including humans. And sometimes it those things help. And sometimes they hurt. All yeah. right. And if you want to do an exhaustive site survey, I suppose when there is a choice between 2.4 and 5 that you could, you know, use iPerf or something like that and just see, you know, what works better. I mean, the as we've discussed, the computer usually makes the right decision. But it may not. Usually. You're right. A- Apple devices, when, when given the same SSID for 2.4 and 5 gigahertz, Apple devices usually make the right decision. Um, but, but yeah, not always. And especially not necessarily with devices in fixed locations. It's, uh, you know, it, it can, I don't know, it can get weird, but if you know better then set it better. Yeah. Uh, Robin had an issue where, uh, let's see if the, there was a, it was a long, long trail that we've been through with Robin, but she was having random crashes on her MacBook pro. Um, the computer when left unused for a few hours would refuse to wake up and she would need to hold the power button until it restarts. And it was happening random times. It would happen when she was doing backups, but it would often be when she was not at the machine. She sent us a follow-up and, uh, she diagnosed it down. You know, we had sent her down the path of, okay, well, check out all the things that are connected to your computer. And she dutifully, you know, kind of A-B tested. No, it was still happening, still happening. The one thing that she left for the, of course, the last thing you test is the, uh, is what it is, sort of by definition. And the last thing she tested was her USB hub. And, uh, and it was a USB 3 hub from Hutu. I think you've got one of those. It was a seven port USB 3 hub. And, uh, and sure enough, having that hub Removing that hub, or I should say replacing that hub with an old USB 2 hub that she had kind of lying around, solved this issue. Now, the question is, was it the USB 3 hub? Was it just a bad, you know, unit? Uh, Or was it the fact that she was running USB 3? And, uh, you know, because USB 3, I guess really we've only seen that interfere with Wi-Fi. We haven't seen it go the other direction where... Uh, you know, interference from the outside locks it up. So it was probably just an issue with the USB hub, but it's always, you know, when, whenever we're troubleshooting, it's always good to know what have we changed? Yes, we took that unit out, but what's different about these two things and going from three to two, you know, really to test this, we'd, we'd need to try a different USB three hub, which I, I think would work, 
but again, worth testing. Thoughts on that, John? You know, that's weird because someone brought this. They claim in their documentation, Hutu specifically, they claim that their USB 3 hub has issues with some Mac minis. Hmm. But they're not entirely, and I'm looking through a support article there. The thing is, I've never had an issue. I mean, sure. well, right, well, right now, especially since I have a machine that actually has USB 3 now. Right. My old machine was USB 2, but I haven't noticed any irregularities. You know, we, uh, you know, we did the video thing a while ago, and my camera's plugged into uh, this thing, and I didn't notice any issues with the, the video stream. Sure. And actually, my, uh, my soundboard is plugged into it as well. So, huh. Well, there you go. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no issues there so far, right? But find wood to knock on, John. We're recording a show. Yeah, but um, but yeah, apparently they, even their, their support says uh, it may not work quite right. But, but yeah. They're never, they're, they're never clear on it. But yeah, um, Furby's, know, good, trouble, good Fur- troubleshooting. Yeah, Furby's in the chat room said it might be the power adapter for the USB hub too. It might not be the hub itself. It could just be the power adapter. USB three, you know, requires more power in some situations, and you know, it, it, and it, it could just be that the power adapter is bad and not the hub itself. And if the power is kind of fluctuating up and down, uh, that could be a, a real issue. And in fact, it, you know, Adam Christensen over there at at MacCast, he was having an issue where with his internet in his house. Um, and it was driving him crazy because things would just work. And then suddenly things wouldn't work anymore. And the only way to get things working was he had to reset his network. Uh, but everything appeared fine. And he had a, a uh, an Aris SB 6141 cable modem. And he started, you know, it was one of these tr- problems, though, that was very, very difficult to, to diagnose down to a specific thing. But he started looking, you know, at, at different things, and it, over the period of a couple of months, he narrowed it down to his neck gear, or to his uh, Aris uh, cable modem, and started doing some searching online and found other people reporting the same symptom. And it turns out, with some of those, not all of them, but some of them, they had power supply issues, and the power supply wouldn't cut out entirely, but it would, you know, kind of deliver an inconsistent amount of power to the, to the modem such that it caused exactly that symptom. So he replaced it with a, uh, with a Netgear cable modem and uh, has had absolutely no problem since he, he could have simply replaced it with a, with a, a newer Eris and that may have solved it too, but his particular one and, and that particular power brick was, was the issue. And Howard in the chat room is saying he had an identical problem with a client with the SB 6141. John, along those lines, I have uh, this show. I have a new toy that I'm testing. This show is coming to you through uh, through a different uh, path than it has previously. We've been talking about this as the year of the router, right? And uh, and of course, you know, with that, the conversation often uh, comes to cable modems as well, because you've got to make sure your cable modem has enough juice and, and, uh, you know, to support whatever speeds your provider is going to deliver to you. So, um, I started looking at the, the concept of combining your cable modem and your router. And today I'm testing the Netgear C7000, which is a combination cable modem and router. It's a 24 by eight 
cable modem, which means it will bond up to 24 channels down and up to eight channels up, depending on your provider. Um, wow. Yeah. And and here's the interesting thing. My previous modem um, was a an eight by four. Okay. And I get about, you know, it's like 175 down and uh, about 12 up. I think it's 150 and 10 is what Comcast promises me, but you know, they always give you a little more and that worked fine on the eight by four, which would bond eight, all eight down, I believe, and three of the four up on my, on this C7000, it bonds 20 of the 24 down and three of the eight on the up. Uh, And that must just be the way Comcast does it right now. So that uh, whatever package you get, you, you could get, you know, the maximum speed that they would offer you. And uh, I'll tell you, it's very interesting. The, the concept of, uh, you know, and this is an AC 1900 router. It runs Netgear's firmware. Although very interestingly, you get your firmware updates from your cable company, right? They're pushed down over that line, which is just, you know, it's a little different, but, uh, but it, you know, I plugged it in and, Went through the Comcast registration, which was all online. It took all of about six minutes, you know, start to finish to get this thing up and running. And it pushed down the latest firmware and, uh, you know, everything's fine. And it's Netgear's firmware. So you get all the features that you would be very happy with on a Netgear router. Plus it's a cable modem. And, um, you know, I I have mixed feelings on this. But I, I, in a general sense, I think it's a good idea for some people to combine these two things into one device. Here's the, here's the thing, right? This thing from Amazon, you're going to pay 220 bucks, 219 for, uh, for this device for a 24 by eight cable modem, you would be paying 120, right? Pretty, pretty easily. And for an AC 1900 router, you'd be paying another, you know, probably 120 to 150 kind of thing. Uh, this device it, at 220 saves you some money and you can turn off the router function at any time, right? So at the moment, actually, I'm running it in cable modem only mode. I've, I've turned off the router function because I, I didn't want to, I, I ran it as a router for a little bit and tested it. And it's, you know, a fully functional AC 1900 dual band router, 2.4 and 5 gigahertz speeds were exactly what you would expect. They're, they were outstanding, in fact. Um, but I didn't want to reconfigure my whole network cause I didn't have a whole lot of time. So I just like, okay, great. That works. Let me turn off the router and, and that turns off everything and basically makes it a cable modem. Now at that point, it's a $220 cable modem. That's, that's too expensive. But if you think about it and you're really only spending a hundred bucks on the router portion, if you need a new router and you need a new cable modem, well, get one of these And then if in a year or two you decide, hey, you know, I need a router with more functionality. Awesome. No problem. You know, you only spent a hundred bucks on the router functionality uh, down the road. You could, and I don't know, I I feel like an AC 1900 router, uh, you know, from anyone, as long as it's good, it's going to last you several years at this point that, you know, when people ask what they should buy, it's anything in that realm is, is what I give them. So I feel like it's a, it's an interesting thing. And of course it, you know, it's one less device that you need to have in that sense. So it's interesting. It's just interesting. It's pretty cool. That's my feeling on it, John. Any questions or anything? 
No, I mean, I went through the same thing. I told you I set up my parents. Uh, yeah. You know, they got the new uh, uh, Xfinity, or at least it says Xfinity, but it's actually an heiress. And uh, yeah, does everything they need. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I like it. It's a, you know, it's a, it, it's a perfectly functional device and uh, really easy to use. I, I was, I was really impressed. I, I wasn't sure how it would be if I, if I decided I wanted to just like put it in cable modem only mode, like, cause I could envision someone doing that a couple of years down the road. And it was literally one switch. It restarted. Everything was fine. And it, you know, just done fun stuff. I like it. The one thing that surprised me about it. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about Mocha in a minute is that this device doesn't support Mocha, uh, which is, you know, sending ethernet over coax. I, I kind of feel like you've got this device. It's your router. It's your cable modem. It's plugged into both technologies, right? Man, we're really missing the boat here by not including a Mocha adapter in there. Um, but you know, maybe they, maybe, I, I'm assuming it's a cost thing and they decided, well, you know, many people aren't going to use the Mocha functionality. Why make everyone pay for it? But, um, but it sure feels like, a missed opportunity because I started using Mocha this week. We'll talk about that in a little while, John. Um, anything else on that before we move on to uh, our last tip of the day? Okay. Um, listener Dave writes, he says, I got a 16 gig iPhone, which for obvious reasons can be painful at times due to low storage. What can make it even more painful is the elusive other category that shows up in iTunes and eats up gigs worth of data, even with a nuke and pave and restore only decreases a tad. And as much as I like iMazing, that can't decrease the other portion either. This is not a help me email. It's a tip. Check this out. Someone with my predicament can go to iOS's settings app, go to general and go to storage. See how much available space you have from there. Go into the iTunes store on the phone and rent, don't worry, you won't actually rent it, rent a movie that is bigger than the available storage on the phone. An error window appears correctly, saying that the phone doesn't have room for the movie. And then what happens? Go back to the settings, and the user will have more storage open up. I'm not making it up, he says. You will magically have more storage. It clears out that other category. So I asked him to clarify this because... How my question was: How big does the movie have to be? If you've only got, let's say, you've got uh, you know five hundred gig or five hundred megs available on the phone, but the other category, when you look in iTunes, is a couple of gigs. You know, do we need would a one gigabyte movie solve this problem, or does it need to be bigger than the free storage plus the other? And the answer is, it only needs to be bigger than the free storage. So if you have five hundred megs truly available, just make sure you rent a movie. That's, you know, a, a gig or even just 600 megs. And, and it, again, it won't let you rent it because you don't have enough room, but that does trigger whatever cleanup routine exists on the iPhone to do this. So thank you so much, Dave. That's uh, I know that's going to help a lot of people. So it's good stuff. It's pretty cool. I mean, I wish Apple would give us a button to say, clean up the other, please homie, but no, we can't do that. Right? I like it. Yeah. All right. We have uh we have a bunch of questions to get to. 
Fusion drives and double NAT. We're going to talk about Mocha. But uh, but first, John, I want to talk about our sponsors, if that works for you. Excellent. Sweet. Our first sponsor today is BB Edit from Barebones Software at barebones.com. I know it sounds crazy to get really happy about software that manages text. But think about how much text you use every day. I know I use a ton of text. BB Edit just does so many things that make it easy to work with text. You know, it'll, you just paste something in there or write something in there. Heck, I write actually a lot of TMO articles that I write. I know I don't write many and I probably should write more, but uh, I write them in BB Edit because it's just text. And, uh, you know, when you start a new document in BB Edit, uh, by default, it's just going to keep going on one line because it's text, but you can have it soft wrap the text. You just go in, you hit uh, the little, it's actually a T in the upper left corner of the document window for text options, you know, and, uh, and choose soft wrap text. And then what it'll do, it doesn't actually add line breaks because you wouldn't want that, but it goes and wraps the text on the screen for you. And that's kind of like right there is what BB edit does for you. It takes care of doing these things to make text look better to you without actually changing the text. It formats it when you're doing like programming or coding or encoding, you know, doesn't have to be some scary arcane thing. It can be HTML or, you know, a little bit of JavaScript. They do some PHP in there. And of course you can do C and C plus plus and anything it knows. And it knows that's the scary part is as soon as you start doing stuff, it knows and it starts highlighting it because it's cool. That's what BB edit does counts words. It finds differences, all kinds of crazy things. You got to check this out. And the cool part is you can for free. Check it out. Barebones.com. You can download a demo. And then once you're ready to buy back to barebones.com, of course, and you buy. Check it out, BB Edit from Barebones Software at barebones.com. Our thanks to Barebones Software for sponsoring this episode. I also want to thank Gazelle at gazelle.com for sponsoring this episode. You know, they started out as a place where you could sell your used iPhone, iPad, MacBooks, sometimes, depending on what's popular. And sometimes the old stuff is what's popular. So you got to take a look. And they still do that. You just go, it's super easy. You click, you go to the website, you click on sell smart because you're smart and you want to sell. And they ask you a few questions because, you know, at that point, they don't yet know. They haven't read your mind. Thankfully, I think we don't have the technology for anyone to do that yet. So, uh, so you have to tell them what it is you're selling, but it's just a few questions. And then they give you a price. You've heard it before from me. Once they give you the price, you say yes or no, then they send you a box. You put the stuff in the box, you ship it back to them. All the costs are paid by them. The box has a label in it. Everything's handled and you're good to go. But you can also buy stuff from them. Go back to the homepage. This time, guess what? Yep, you're right. You click buy smart because you're smart and you want to buy. These are certified by Gazelle pre-owned devices. And again, iPhones, MacBooks, iPads, you can get some really good stuff there. It changes all the time. But, uh, you know, you can get uh, early 2011 MacBook Pro 13-inch for $499. And, and other stuff, too. You can go, you know, they've got pages and pages of these things. But 500 bucks, right? You got to check this out. So go to gazelle.com. 
when you're checking out either buying or selling, tell them you heard from Adam from us. They appreciate that. I think we're right in the little drop down list. They make it easy. Our thanks to Gazelle for sponsoring this episode. Now it's time for some questions. Simon asks, I'll be getting an iMac shortly. I'm going to get a 27 inch. Do I go for either the one terabyte fusion drive or the 256 gig SSD? There's a cost difference. He's in the UK, 75 pounds for the one terabyte fusion drive, 150 for the 256 gig SSD. And then with the SSD, I would add an external or one, uh, one or two terabyte Thunderbolt or USB drive, which would give the best performance for general light use plus very occasional photo and video editing. It's a good question. You know, we've, um, the, the fusion drive concept has, has morphed and our, our, our feelings on the fusion drive concept have morphed. It, the, the concept itself has actually been pretty static since it came out in, in a good way. Um, people have had really good luck with the fusion drives. So for simplicity's sake, I, I think the fusion drive is probably best. You get one volume the system decides where things go, whether it's on the SSD or on the, uh, on the spindle, uh, the SSD in today's fusion drives, I think is down to 64 gigs. Um, it's, but again, the system's managing this for you and people, very few people have reported like corruption issues with their fusion drives. And, um, even less people have reported, you know, uh, management issues with anything. It just works. And it really tends to be pretty quick because it's not, it's not a dumb cache where it's just taking the most recent things and putting it on the, uh, on the SSD. It's actually taking the things that it knows you will need. So system files and those types of things are always going to live there so that you get a real nice quick boot up and all that stuff. And then yes, it will cache, you know, your more recently used stuff as well. So, I think for simplicity's sake, the fusion drive is good. But if you like managing that stuff yourself, then getting an SSD with the external drive gives you that flexibility. And as I said, you're talking about a larger SSD in this case. Um, you could get the Mac with the fusion drive and then break it. Uh, and that's totally possible. And then use the, the two separate, but, but with the smaller SSD, you probably don't want that. So if you like the idea of managing it yourself, and there's some benefit to having all of your like photos and music and, you know, your media libraries, if you will, on an external drive. Uh, it makes it easier, you know, when the time comes to upgrade down the road or if you need more storage, uh, you just get a larger external drive and move things around, but you're not having to kind of rethink the world because, you know, moving it from the, its default location to an external drive, there's some benefits there if you like that kind of stuff and you like managing it that way. So I don't, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a fixed recommendation for this. It really is up to you. If you, if you want simplicity, then go that way. I, I think you're going to be very happy with the fusion drive. Um, but you know, uh, th there's some of us enjoy the process of managing that manually. And, and if you do, then absolutely go with the, the external. What do you think, John? Mm. I think I don't like the rotational drives that Apple uses. Oh, yeah. I'll tell you because, so that would be my only concern, and I'll mention this because I just got this dandy refurb Mac Mini 2014. 
and the one terabyte and and my intent from the start was whatever's in there i'm taking it out sure and i'm glad i did because um and apple tends to do this uh i'm not sure it was a sata 2 drive Okay. Even though this machine now has a SATA 3 bus. So, so the, the, the Mini I had before, the 2010, had a SATA 2 bus. Um, this one has a SATA 3 bus. The thing is, the rotational drive that they put in here, uh, we talked about this you know, a little while ago, but I was like, wow, this thing's a real dog. You know, just, just to try it out before I you know, pulled the drive out. But it was because the drive is actually SATA 2. So even though the machine can do 6 gigabits per second, the drive itself is limited to 3 now. And, and probably because, much, much slower than that, too, just because oh yeah. of the speed. of The, the bus so is did, not the limiting factor there, right? Right. And I did a benchmark on the drive that they shipped it with, and I think I was getting maybe like 30, 40 megabytes a second. Really, you know, sluggish, really slow. Um, then I popped in, you know, the SSD that OCZ, you know, replaced. Right. Um, and actually, taking apart this mini... Uh, was actually a nicer process than the other one. Oh, hang, uh, hang on. I want to I get to that. But at first, I, I want to kind of wrap up um, the, the question that, that oh, Simon had. Sure. Yeah, but, the, but then I want to hear about this. But so it, this, is an, but this is interesting, right? Because the Apple is notorious for using slower drives. I'm trying to, I tried to do some searching here to see what kind of drives they're using in the Fusion Drive. And I, I can't quick, at least not quickly here while we're doing the show, I can't find it. But, you know, it, it makes me wonder, it, it, I know that anecdotal evidence, um, and really that's all you can look at it with the fusion drives. Cause if you start doing like, you know, raw benchmarks on them, you're going to get weird results because it's not the, the benchmarks, you know, not going to be representative of how the system manages all of this for you. But anecdotal evidence is that it works quite well. Um, I wonder if perhaps there's a third option here for Simon is spend the 75 pounds on the fusion drive and then still get an external drive, right. To store your, your stuff, you're saving a little bit of money. You're getting, you know, the fusion drive is going to give you a lot of the speed benefit of an SSD because it is an SSD. Um, but it's, it's kind of intelligently caching it. So I, I wonder if the, if that third option is actually the right way to go. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I mean, you know, you want the speed, you save a little bit of money, you've got the, the extra storage. So you're not even limited to two fifty six gigs on your internal drive. You know, it's kind of going to do that. And then for the things that you don't want to fill up that internal drive, well offload them on a much faster rotational, you know, you know that you're, your big monster photo library and your videos and all that stuff. You really don't want that kind of imposing on the things that you would normally have the fusion drive store on the SSD. So just don't do it. Storm off on, on an external. I don't know. I, you know, I, I'm, that would be my only concern with the, uh, with the fusion drive choice and what you want to use it for is that, yeah, you may, you may, uh, for the heavy lifting, um, the rotational drive may, may uh, be unpleasant. Right, right. Yeah, but if you just move that heavy lifting, it, you know, if 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 you were going to do that anyway, if you bought the the um, the SSD alone, well, maybe you just do that anyway. I don't know. 
So t- tell us about your, uh, the, 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 so you, you, you cracked open the Mac mini again to put the, uh, SSD in there, right? Yeah. So taking it apart is, uh, once you get the magic screwdriver is, right. uh, is right. nice, but, uh, no, the throughput that I get with this SSD is pretty much near what they state, which is, you know, on the order of hundreds of megabytes a second using the black magic disk speed test. So much, much better. Very, awesome. very snappy. Um, do you, yeah. So I get, and I, I think I know the answer to this, but between the rotational drive that you had in there as an interim step and this SSD boots are faster and all that stuff, I assume. Oh, drastically. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. And SSDs are cheap. We just had somebody um, tell us they bought a 480 gig on Amazon for, you know, like 125 bucks or something. Oh, yeah, and I was looking the other day on, uh, uh, you can get some crucial uh, one terabyte yeah. through uh, Amazon or maybe directly from them. But, but it looks like the pricing was, you know, uh, high twos, low $300 wow. or something like that. Yeah. And they have a lot of specials. Actually, every now and then Amazon has specials on uh, SanDisk memory products, which includes SSDs. And actually, you can get a you can get a pretty good deal. Keep your eye out for, for some of those deals there. But yeah. uh, the one thing that I like about the... Um, so this machine has a feature that I haven't encountered before, and it actually came in pretty handy here. So, um, whereas my MacBook doesn't do this, it was the last machine that doesn't do this, but this Mac Mini does power nap. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. The yeah, interesting right. offshoot is that I w- at first I was like, um, you know, I haven't yet set up my carbon copy cloner environment, um, but I do do Time Machine, and I'm like, well, you know what? I want to schedule it to uh do backups sure and at first i went to energy saver and i was like okay wake up at 2 a.m um and then i used the time machine editor and said you know start the backup at 2 a.m and then put the machine to sleep but then i'm like wait a second i don't need to do that because one of the things the power nap does is it will do a time machine backup in the background <laughs> oh, <laughs> that's yeah. one of the features so i looked the next day so i said you know what i'm, I'm gonna so i i disabled those options in uh in the energy thing, I you know, I didn't manually set the wake up and, and sleep. I just scheduled the time machine backup. And when I looked at it the next day, it said, oh, yeah, the last uh, time machine backup was at 2 a.m. Oh, morning. yeah. And I'm like, oh, thank you. Very nice. Yeah. So that's it's handy. That's a, uh, uh, yeah. And again, if I got my MacBook Pro 2012 um, non-retina uh, was the only, was one machine before okay. that capability would work. So it doesn't work on this machine. Not that you know, sure. I'm crying over it. I mean, it has everything right. else I right, want, right. Though. you know, Thunderbolt and USB three. I mean, that was really my goal to get these two machines in parity now, as far as the, uh, the speed of the buses. Right. But, right. Um, cool. All right. All right. Ed, um, Ed's mo- He's got a Verizon set up. Uh, he, he's got files from Verizon. And uh, he's been unhappy with the performance of his Verizon Action Tech uh, modem router, the wireless performance. And he said, especially compared to my Apple products, which do pretty well. And I'll agree. Yeah. Uh, He says, I purchased an airport extreme, not knowing how best to connect it. I found an article on NoZillaCast where Bart Bruchatz provides a a solution. And he talks about configuring the Fios router in a way um, you can't put the Fios router in bridge mode. At least I don't think. So, uh, so the setup is either 
you're putting your Apple in your airport express in bridge mode, or you're running them both as routers and you wind up with something called double NAT. And, uh, and Ed asks, what is double NAT and will this cause problems? So it might, uh, it might not double NAT. What NAT is the technology that takes one IP address and then shares it as multiple IP addresses. So, uh, in a very traditional NAT setup, you get one IP address, say, from your internet provider, and that is assigned to your router. And then your router creates an internal network of lots of IP addresses and funnels everything in and out through the one IP address that it gets from the outside world. And this usually works really, really well. Um, but it's sort of predicated on the con on the assumption that the one IP address that your router is getting can then talk to and from the outside world. So the router is sort of in charge of managing that with a double NAT scenario. Um, and NAT stands for network address translation. Not that it matters, although it does, I guess uh, in a double NAT scenario or in, in Ed scenario, he's got this Verizon Fios router and that is set up to do NAT, right? So it gets the address from the outside world and then it creates its own network for everything inside it. And then Ed connects one device to that router, which is his airport extreme, which then does NAT again and creates a network inside it that everything connects to. So even though only one device is connected to the Fios router, it's still behind this double level of, of translation, if you will. And the airport express does not have a clear path to the outside world. Depending on what you're doing, this might not matter, right? If all you're doing is some web surfing and checking email and that sort of thing, no problem. If you start to do things like uh, you want to run a, a server in your house, like a, a Synology or a, a transporter or something where your devices are going to want access in and out, it, it gets more complex. It, it can work, but you've sort of created a, an environment that these devices are more than one hop away from something that sees the outside world. Uh, it can be a problem if you're doing, you know, file transfers with people and, and things like that game, playing games, online games, a lot of times double that it just rules it out entirely. Again, there's, there's workarounds for it, but it, you're, you're putting yourself in a world that, is not handy. It's not, not simple. It's much better to have single NAT. And if you can't, and, and in Ed's case, he can't, if you can't turn off the routing capabilities, essentially your devices are either going to be in router mode or bridge mode. They might not all call it that, but that's what we're talking about. Router mode NAT is on and it's assigning addresses and doing all that stuff. Bridge mode. It's just passing the data through. Um, and, in this case, in any case, really the best scenario is to have only one device in router mode and then the other device in bridge mode. And that's, I think, what Ed should do here. Leave the Verizon router in router mode because it can't be in bridge mode. And then put your, but turn off the wireless capabilities of the Verizon router, okay? Because you don't like them. And you've got this airport extreme. So put the airport extreme in bridge mode and that's actually what it's called. And then have your wireless devices connect to that it's essentially now a, a, a device that is in bridge mode that has uh, that is a wireless 
um, device that things that can, that things can connect to would be called an access point, a wireless access point. So you're essentially dumbing down your airport extreme and making it a wireless access point. And that's the best thing to do here. Just have one router. Uh, and, and then, and he, he actually, he went on to talk about how he has a printer that doesn't work quite right. And it's probably because of double NAT, you know, the printer's probably connecting to one side of the network. The, uh, rest of the devices are on another and and because they're on this double network that, you know, they don't see each other and it's, it's a mess. So you're much better off that way. That's my feeling on it, John. And it, uh, there's some folks in the chat room that say, yeah, not bad or double not bad. So uh, thoughts, John, anything to add, anything I'm missing? No, I concur. Um, the good news with Nat is that without it, um, we would have run out of IP addresses a long time ago. Nat was a very clever way. Right. Of allowing people to have multiple devices all behind a single IP address. And it's funny, um, internet providers didn't used to support the concept of NAT. Now, I mean, it's they're actually shipping you devices that do it intentionally because it's the right thing to do. But when it first came around, you know, they were like, oh, no, 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 you, you know, you're supposed to just connect one device to the internet. And uh, if you've got a router we can't support that. And I mean, I get it. You know, they can only do what they can do, but, uh, but they thankfully kind of came around on that. And the way they support it is by being the ones that give you a router. If you choose to get it from them, you know, which I don't recommend in most cases, but you know, there you go. So yeah, fun stuff. I mean, the nice thing is at least the Apple equipment, yep. um, normally warns you when you're in a double NAT scenario, and that the the light will blink, or uh, they run a background agent, and it'll actually come up. Um, I've had this. I, I no longer have uh, Apple wireless hardware. Well, yeah. I do. I have I have a, a an Express downstairs, but I just use that for AirPlay. I don't use it for uh, for internet. Okay, so it's in bridge mode, and and just doing. Well, it's just in AirPlay mode. The, the yeah, only thing gotcha. I use it for okay. is streaming music to it. I, I don't, it, it is no longer an extension. It no longer mm. acts like an extension. Right. Yeah. You have the wireless disabled and you have its routing functions disabled. So it's in bridge mode and it's not even a wireless access point. It's just a, yeah, like it just say, shows just up airplay device. It yeah. just, yeah, it just shows up uh, as a airplay destination. I do that too. I have, um, I have a, an old air airport express, probably the same vintage as yours um, plugged into my Sonos and, and obviously into my network so that I can airplay to Sonos cause there's no way to do that directly. And, uh, and it works fine, you know, then, no problem. It's all good. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I think it varies as far as if other manufacturers how how they handle it. I mean, again, Apple was good, and typically, if my uh, uh, connection went down, it would also report a problem saying, "Hey, I can't reach the DNS," which it was like really saying, "I can't reach anything." <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, there's this one thing I can't reach in addition to everything else. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Um, Moving to Andrew here. Andrew has uh, a, a quick question. It, it's, a, it's a good one. Uh, he says, I purchased an album from the iTunes store and want to re-download it to my Mac. However, when I go there, it shows that I've already purchased it and am unable to download it again. On my MacBook Pro 13-inch, I only have one song from that album, and I do not know where the other songs are. How do I re-download the album? Um, Apple lets you re-download this stuff, uh, or at least they say they do. But it's not always obvious how to get there. So go to iTunes, 
sign into the store, and then uh, choose purchased from the account menu that, that will appear once you're signed in. You may already be signed in. Uh, once you are there, you know, you so the account menu is this thing with your, um, your name right up at the top. And if you have a family account, it would be listed as family purchases, but you just go up to, uh, to purchase there. And then you get a screen that lets you pick. It's, it's kind of backwards the way this all works, but in the upper, well, sort of in the upper, right. You get to pick whether you're looking at music, movies, TV shows, apps, or audiobooks. So in your case, go to music. And then in the middle of the top of the screen, choose not in my library as opposed to all that will make it easier to see the things that you don't have. And then you can pick albums or songs and you can sort by most recent or by name or however you want to do it from here. You should just be able to hit the cloud icon and download it. Um, that, that should work just fine. Um, the issue with going in the store and searching for the album and finding it there, it sometimes will work that way. But if anything about the album has changed since you um, since you purchased it, you might have purchased one version. And now when you search, you're finding the remastered version or something. And and it's it's not going to be in sync. And, and like you found, sometimes one track is in sync, but the rest are not. But if you go to the purchase section, that will show you what you've purchased and you can redownload it um, from there. So hopefully that works. It is handy. I do this all the time. I go here. In fact, I have a note on my calendar, a recurring note on my calendar or my to-do list to go here and go to apps and make sure I download to my Mac, not only the apps that I have purchased, but the apps that my family's purchased it on this screen in the upper left. If you are part of a family account, you will see that you have a dropdown for all of the members of your family. You'll be listed um, kind of by default, but then you can pick the other members of your family and download things that they've gotten. It just makes it easier because it will add these to your account now. And uh, if you ever go and want to download one of those on your phone or something, you, you know, you, you don't have to go through that weird thing with Apple where it says, Hey, you're about to buy this. And then you buy it and it says, Oh no, don't worry. Somebody in your family already bought it. You're not going to be charged. Uh, it would be nice to have some indication that that's what's going to happen. But you know, that's how it works. Anyway, that's uh, that's where that goes. Anything to add to that before we uh, before we move to Will here, John? Nope. Okay. Then it's time for Will. Will writes. He says I have a quick question that needs. Uh, he says I own a 2012 MacBook Pro uh, with a spindle drive. When I purchased it, I also bought an external WD My Passport for Mac one terabyte USB three drive to use as a backup. I do not use my MacBook every day. Usually once a week to change the music on my phone, do some studies. And uh, to update the household finances spreadsheet, I'm using a total of 275 gig of my 750 gig spindle drive. As such, I tend to back up once a month when I plug my passport in and let both carbon copy cloner and time machine do their stuff. Sometimes I do it every week if it's a particularly busy study period and I panic. Smart. Here's the thing. The drive is starting to fill up. I assume that carbon copy cloner and time machine just cleverly identify an older version, delete it and save their new copy to the drive. And this could happen endlessly. Alternatively, should I format the passport and start again afresh? Finally, is there any point in taking time machine backup and a carbon copy cloner backup when I backup so rarely? I'm tempted to just do carbon copy cloner. Many thanks in advance. Yeah, so carbon copy cloner can be set very specifically um, to limit the space it consumes. Basically, it will... 
uh, consume whatever the size of your source data is. So if you're going to clone either a folder or the entire drive, whatever the amount of space in your, in your case, 275 gigs, that's what it's going to use. Uh, on top of that carbon copy cloner, uh, has what they call their safety net because it is a cloning software. If you delete something from your local drive, uh, from the source, it will delete it from the destination. That's the point of a clone. However, the safety net allows you to have a little safety net. And instead of deleting it, it moves it. And you can, you can set the maximum size of that safety net or how long things live in there. And that, kind of helps keep the data packaged up nicely. Time machine, on the other hand, will start a backup. And the first one would be basically the size of the source. And then it will keep adding files to that until it fills up the volume that it's on. And then, then it will start pruning stuff and hopefully work. But having time machine on the same volume as something else can be a problem because time machine will use up every bit of storage eventually and might start causing problems for your carbon copy cloner. So I would either partition the drive so that time machine is limited uh, or put time machine on a separate drive or, or something like that. What do you think, John? I think I just went through this in that when I rebuilt my MacBook pro, I actually wanted to test the limits of time machine and it okay. was actually very interesting to watch it, and it actually took it about a day to clear up enough space because yeah. I basically had all new files. Um, but yeah, what it did first is it, uh, so what it first does when it needs more space, so first it said, well, there's not enough space. You know, I need uh, 150 gigs and, and you don't have that. Right. So first it, it, it gets rid of what it calls expired backups, which from what I can see are these like interim backups. So it'll do that first. So the thing is, uh, you know, Time Machine normally, though you can change it with Time Machine Editor, um, but it normally, I think, does hourly backups. Right, right, right. Um, the thing is, uh, so what it was doing to to clear space is it would first get rid of these interim backups. Um, it will do that before it gets rid of the oldest one because I watched it and I actually looked in the console and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. I, I just wanted to see what would happen. I'm like, you know, yeah, I could have, you know, deleted it, but I didn't want to. I wanted to see what would happen. And it did. So it got rid of, it cleared up a lot of space by getting rid of these expired backups or these little in-between backups. And then it started pruning the oldest one. Um, though we've had people report that doesn't always work. It should, but it doesn't. And it I doesn't. think it's because, and this may be something to shake my fist at in our future in our crystal ball here but um i think it's because the backup is corrupt because normally the, the way it's structured it should uh, but i saw it happen you know I, I rarely see it happen i'm approaching my limits here so yeah yeah it's crazy all right you want to take us on to gary my friend do i yeah gary's got an interesting one uh let's see okay so I wonder if we have an answer here. So, hello, gentlemen. I use Apple Mail for my personal account and Microsoft Outlook for my business email. If I try to initiate an email by clicking on a hotlink address within an Outlook email, it creates the new mail in Apple Mail, my default email program. Is there a workaround such that Outlook would not trigger another mail client, but just create one within itself? <laughs> it sounds like you, yes. you've been through this, John. Yeah. 
Well, I went through it and it didn't work exactly the way that I thought it would. So the thing is, Apple does have a dandy support article called Set the Default Email App and Web Browser for Your Mac. That's one way of doing it. And it basically gives instructions. So anything that has to do with mail or anything that has to do with browsing the web, within the OS, you can set which program will field those requests. Sure. And unfortunately, um, as far as I know, um, you can only have one program set as the default. (laughs) That doesn't quite fit into Gary's workflow. Right. Now, I ran into another problem is that the instructions that I sent him don't quite work. Because I tried it, and I'm like, wait a second, this isn't working. So I have three clients installed on one of my machines that I tried to test this out with. And sure. I do have Outlook, but it, it's from a, a Office beta, and it, the, the, I haven't even set it up to do actual mail. But, it la- but I did it for testing launching. Now, here's a, here's a little hitch, though. Um, so I would go to mail, change the default email client to Outlook, and then quit mail, and then it opened it up again, and it's like, yep, I'm going to use mail for the default. And I'm like, well, no, 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 hold on a sec. <laughs> and you know what the problem was? Well, if you read through this, you'll know what the problem is. But here was the problem, and actually someone else reported this, and I verified this. You have to log out of iCloud to get this setting to take hold. What? Yet another reason, I, I verified it, dude. I know it sounds crazy. No, I, but I believe you, Yeah. But no, every time I went back to mail, it said, oh, I'm going to use mail, right? And I'm like, well, no, 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 no. I had to totally <laughs> log really. out, yeah. then change, then reboot my system, and then it, the, the, the change took hold. So that can kind of address his, uh, his issue. Hmm. Huh. Um, then he said, uh, but the problem is I use two email clients for different accounts and triggering hotlink addresses within the non-default Outlook account creates emails. Right, right. Huh. Um, the only th- other thing I could say, all right, so if that solution doesn't work for him and it sounds like it, it should, but again, I, I found a, a situation where it didn't work even though I told it. Uh, and then you have to log out iCloud. So that may work for him. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, the only other thing I could suggest is that there's, um, and this the, this app still works. It's actually a pref game called RC Default App from Rubicode. Yeah. And that shows you all of the various subtle mappings to applications. And there's not just one way to do this. Um. There's a number of ways to uh, say, okay, if a link of this type is... A, so, for example, the way that I tested this, Dave, is I would go into Safari, and I would type mail to, colon, and then an email address. And when I did that, it's like, oh, you, you want to do mail. Okay, well, uh, let me launch your mail client for you. And, and it did. Because <laughs> that's a, what it should do. But this RC default app shows all of these mappings, and the thing is you may need to use RC default app to, to change one of these... A, a more subtle mapping than this global one so that Outlook will do what you want. Because it actually has a list of, of uh, you know, file types and extensions and MIME types and things like this and which app is, is supposed to handle it. So, so it may, ne- may be necessary to use RC default app to get okay. the level of granularity that you want. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. <sighs> it's crazy, man. 
But it's kind of a problem because then, oh, I understand your pain, but it's just the, the way most OSs are set up. They're like, I'm going to use this program to handle this, you know, this, this uh, type of document. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense. It's crazy, man. That uh... I mean, Outlook, <laughs> I mean, Microsoft support, I mean, I, I don't know if maybe if you right-click on the, the link. Again, I can't test it because I'm not running Outlook. I wonder if you right-click on the link, if you can somehow choose the oh. email client or if you can build maybe like an automator action or something like that. Oh, know? that would be interesting and set that as the default mail client and have it. Oh yeah. Huh? I'm wondering if, if I mean, this could get really, uh, but yeah, you may be able, I mean, a lot of times when you right click on something, services will come, you get a yeah. services menu and you may be able to create an automator or Apple script or something says, okay, take, take this uh, argument here and, and, you know, launch, launch this app for me, please. Yeah. 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 That may be, it would be doable. Yeah. Yeah. You may have to, now that I think about it more, you may have to resort to that in order to uh, settle this. Right. Either that or RC default app again, may, may, maybe may offer a subtle mapping that, uh, that'll work for you. Yeah. Or, or yeah, call Microsoft, say, Hey, what's up, man? This is broken. Yeah, fix it. fix it, homie. <laughs> That's right. If any Outlook users are, are dealing with this, please please let us know. I uh, I don't think you're a user either, Dave. No, not no, I'm not. I I mean, I have it because I have a subscription to um, Office 365, but no, I don't use it. So, all right, um, we'll do Scott and talk about Mocha because we promised we would do that, and then we will do uh, we will peer into our cloudy. Uh, crystal balls and see what we find john scott says i've been thinking of taking the tivo plunge thinking of a bolt and a mini however i'm concerned about one thing i have verizon fios and i know that the tivo isn't a problem but it will require a network between them i know that the mocha network travels over over coax my concern is the coax carries both the both the tv and the internet from the fiber optic cable connection unit outside the house and uh, over the current coax there's a splitter on the coax with three connections Connections go to two rooms. One room has the TV. The other room has the TV and the modem router. So I'm assuming that there's already some sort of Mocha thing happening already. Can I replace my current cable boxes with TiVo boxes and still have it work over Mocha? Um, I think so. Yeah. Based on what I've read about the Verizon stuff, uh, it, it, it should work. Uh, I'm running Comcast here, but this week, as I mentioned, I set up a TiVo mini and in the end, I wound up using Mocha to connect it. The cool part is the mini natively supports Mocha as does the TiVo bolt. So you don't need any additional hardware. Mocha is essentially ethernet over your existing coax wires, and it can coexist with your cable modem and your existing TV signals. Uh, it, it just uses a, a different part of the band. That's uh, typically not used by those things. You need to make sure you have the right splitters. <laughs> From what I understand, and, and I'm trying to reconcile this, so if anybody knows, uh, Mocha, I think, lives in like the 1500 hertz, like 1500 to 2000 hertz range. All my splitters end at 1002 hertz, and Mocha is working fine over them. So I, I don't know what that means. It may be that the splitters that I have um, are only rated to 1002, but wound up, you know, wind up going higher than that. So. Uh, I would be interested to know if anybody has any direct experience with it, but um, yeah, Mocha it, it's, I'm pretty impressed because 
well, now that I have it working, it's, it's going over a pretty long expanse of, of coax cable. Some of the connectors on the ends are ones that I put on and I, I like need to redo them because they're not perfect. And it's gone through quite a few splitters just because of the way the house is, is organized. And I'm still getting, uh, about 200 megabits per second in one direction over Mocha and 175 in the other. So this is, you know, much better than power line to that portion of my house. Power line in most parts of my house, I get, you know, 80 to 120, depending on, you know, the phase of the moon in that section of my house, for whatever reason, um, power line is like, you know, at best like 40 megabits. So Mocha's way faster. And again, once it's all cabled up, right. I think most people aren't going to have any problems with Mocha. I did. Um, but it was my own fault and I just needed to think about things. I plugged it all in and Mocha just wouldn't work. It just wouldn't see it at all. And I tried it over power line. And even though the devices would, I could see both devices on the network, they wouldn't see each other. There must be something that TiVo needs to do. And it's, stuff that power line filters. I tried it over a wireless bridge uh, that didn't do it either. Again, I'm assuming there's some weird filtering or I don't know, but uh, then I started tracing my mocha or my, my coax cables. I'm like, why doesn't mocha work here? And, uh, and I realized that the run to the run that eventually goes downstairs in my house was not being fed from my house. It was being fed from my office. I have, two runs of cable coming from the street, one to the house, one to the office in the studio here. And then between those, between the house and the office underground, I have a couple of coax and a couple of cat five um, in order to limit the number of splitters between the line that comes into the house and my cable modem. I just simply ran the um, coax to, you know, I, I didn't use a splitter and I just ran it straight downstairs to, to just bypass that and, and be able to skip a splitter. So it was on, you know, one part of my house was on a totally different coax network that fed from a, you know, from a different line from the street. And I'd totally forgotten that I had done it. So there, there's a lesson for you folks is, you know, when you make changes like this network diagrams, especially when you start getting nuts, like I do, that can be very helpful. Then once I saw it, it was like, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. And then I just wired it up differently. And the cable modem's still fine. And now Mocha works and everything's happy. And it works really well. The TiVo Mini thing, it's it's pretty cool how that just, it just works. So if you don't want to run cable in your Mocha, you can do for whatever reason. You don't have to do it with TiVo. Although if you have a Romeo or a Bolt, you have a Mocha hub on your network already. And you just need to turn it on in the software uh, and the settings of the TiVo. And then you can just add another, you know, device elsewhere on your network for, I don't know, they're about uh, 60 or 70 bucks, I think. And then you, you'll get, you know, Ethernet-ish speeds over coax. So, Mocha works, John. We finally tested it. I like it. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Yeah, I, I looked this up. So, the... Uh so mentioning splitters, that's a, it's something good to consider because I'm looking here and they say that the frequency of Mocha is between 500 to 1650 megahertz. So. Okay. Okay. So maybe mine is living in the below 1000 uh, Hertz range and that's why it's, it's happy. Yeah. Either that, or maybe it's smart enough if it figures out that you can't 
handle higher frequencies that it backs off somehow. Yeah. So, uh, that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I wonder if I should replace all my splitters with, you know, beefier splitters and see what happens. They, they, I also see people with mocha recommending putting a, what they call a point of entry, a POE filter in place to keep your mocha signals from traveling back out of the house. You put it like right at the point of entry and it, totally filters the entire mocha range out so that you're not sending any of that data upstream. People say it helps. I don't, you know, um, so anything, I don't know. I don't know. What do I know, John? I just know what I test here. I really, it, this has been fun, you know, power line and Wi-Fi bridges and mocha and all of that. Um, but as I said in the last show, I, I really think I'm, I'm just going to have somebody come out and wire ethernet in one of my walls uh, into the living room because I think it would save me a lot of headache. So we'll see, we'll see how that goes. Um, but it's provided a lot of it. Not having that has provided a lot of material for the show over the years. Like, you know, but now I'm, I feel like we are done. We've checked the mocha. We're good. Checked all the boxes. Let's run an ethernet drop and get past this. Shall we, John, shall we uh, shine up our crystal balls here? Do a little bit of uh, prognosticating. Uh, I guess we could. I cool. see one last question, but uh, no, we can save that for later. Yeah. So, it, you know, we figured, uh, actually, this is an idea that someone had in our Facebook group at uh, MacGeekGab.com slash Facebook that uh, it would be interesting to have a little discussion about what the future uh, holds for Apple products. Um, and and it, it is. It's interesting to think about. Um you know, I, I, I've, I, there's there's lots of places to go with this. Um, I, I figure I'll start. I'll we'll start with the iPhone, but but I know we'll jump around because I feel like all these products. Well, they are interrelated because they're coming from the same company, but I think they're going to be more and more interrelated. But yeah, you know, the the iPhone will it be here in in ten years? Yes, I, I think there's there's little question about it. What will it look like? You know. Um, I think in the short term, maybe even with the iPhone, whatever they call it, the seven, I assume in the fall, uh, I think we're going to see a waterproof iPhone that's actually marketed as a waterproof iPhone because the 6S uh, and 6S Plus are waterproof. Um, we have proven that here in my house. Many really? people. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, I saw somebody did a video where they submerged the phone for like a half an hour and, and it seemed to work. It's totally but, uh, fine. Yeah. I don't know why Apple wouldn't advertise that fact unless well you know that I, it yeah, wasn't that, intentional oh i have I no doubt it was intentional i think it's one of those things that they just wanted to you know why not roll it out we're gonna see less you know we don't want to encourage people to go swimming with these things but we're gonna see less coming back into the you know into the genius bar that with water damage because water damage doesn't yeah. cause any issues yet you know i, I think and then they don't have to put the water damage sensor in there yeah you're right <laughs> but i think it's you know why don't we do this we don't have to announce that it's waterproof, but well, let's do this. Let's take a look at support, you know, for a year or so on this and then decide with the seven, do we want to say it's waterproof? Cause we can. And the watch is the same way. I mean, you know, you can swim with the stupid thing. It's fine, but they don't announce it that way. You know? Um, so I think like, you know, and, and again, water being waterproof is kind of a mundane way to start peering into the crystal ball. But, uh, but I think it's a short term, a very short term thing. So, um, you know, I, in, in kind of a, and I, I think, I think we will see, 
you know, the MacBook starts to make sense as a, as a very water resistant, if not waterproof device, right? You know, we've only got one port in it now. There's that, there's that, um, that patent that Apple recently got, or that we recently saw that basically takes, it's the concept of a, a single port, you know, USB C kind of thing, but it's all magnetic. So there's no actual port. You're just like sort of stacking these things on top of each other and data and power can flow through it. So that would be very interesting uh, and, and certainly help make that device more resistant to water. I don't know if they'll ever announce that it's, you know, a waterproof laptop, but it sure would be nice to know that if you spilled some stuff on your, you know, spilled on the keyboard or it was out in the rain, it was just like, yeah, no big deal. So I, I think, I think that could happen too. As far I'm as look a little bit ahead. farther ahead, here's yeah, what I'd yeah, like go to ahead. see. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. and the, the technology has been evolving. You know, it's not Apple's core competency, but here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see an iPhone with a projector in it. It's so funny. That was just going to say the same. Well, so w- when you say iPhone with a projector, what describe that? Uh, that I could watch a movie or do a presentation. Mm, okay. Proje- project on a surface. And, and they've been making progress as far as, um, uh, projectors, uh, you know, traditional ones, you know, that we all grew up with, you know, used a, a high-powered, very bright light bulb. Yeah. Incandescent bulb. And then I've seen, you know, people dabbling with uh, laser and LED and, and some other things like that. And there's still a way to go because, I mean, you, you, you need enough juice to, you know, provide enough light. And that that's a hard problem. And maybe it, it would be... That you'd have to, you know, extern- that you know, I mean, it'd run your battery down. But, uh, but I'm just thinking it would be cool. Is that say you're, you know, on the road or just travel, or you want to travel light, and you want to be like, uh, and and maybe, maybe it's more for the iPad than the iPhone, just because the oh, battery yeah. in the iPhone is so small. But I, I would entertain maybe a, a in an iPad, you could probably integrate uh, a projector. So I'm going to take that idea and, tool. and kind of turn it on its head, because I, I like this. Um, I had a, I had a similar concept, but, uh, perhaps looking a little further down the road and just looking at it a little differently, you know, it's obvious that what we want is a device as, and I'm talking about the phone here, uh, as small as possible with the biggest display possible. I'm not going to say the biggest screen, but the biggest display possible, right? You know, the, the iPhone SE, everybody that's used one says, wow, you know, I forgot what it was like to have a phone this size. I wind up holding, I still have a, a five and a five S that sit on my desk. They're unused at the moment. I probably should sell them off to gazelle or at least one of them. I always like to have a backup around in case somebody, you know, wrecks their phone, and, but I have to charge them like every couple of weeks, you know, and, and I, when I grab them to charge it and plug it in, it's like, Oh, I, you know, it's nice to have a device this small, but I really like the screen on the six S plus. And so thinking about, okay, is there some way to project a larger image from a smaller device, right? Because I don't need the, the screen size of the 6S Plus all of the time, but there's some times that I do. So yeah, is it a projector? Is it some sort of, you know, is there a way to make use of, of hologram-ish technology, right, to to create a 
is to temporarily create a screen size that's bigger than the actual screen. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to do this. And I, I wonder, you know, when I'm just looking at text messages and checking my mail and, and, you know, whatever, just messing around on my phone, I don't need a monster screen, but there's some times where it's super handy to be able to, to see more. And it, it's what makes the six S plus worth it. Plus the battery life. Cause the battery in the six S plus is much bigger, but with the smaller screen in the SE, even though it's a smaller sized battery, still got great battery life because it's not driving the larger screen. So, um, yeah, that's it. It's interesting. The projector might be the, the answer that I, I like that, John. That's good. That's good. Um, Let's talk about the Mac. Unless you've got more on the iPhone, we can we can jump around here for a little bit. Um, the other thing I, uh, you know, I, I'm just seeing this stuff evolve here, but I really like it on the iPhone. Is uh, and you and I have been using some apps that that make it uh, kind of fun, but doing smarter things with your location. Um, and I think we're just seeing the beginnings of that right now. Yeah. Whether it's Swarm or Foursquare or even grew, it, I'd like to see more notifications on my phone telling me that there's, you know, a sale or there's a friend or actually it did that the other day. You, yeah. you were in the state and it said, Hey, Dave's in Connecticut. And I'm like, what? Yeah. You didn't tell me. That's right. Yeah. But you had some of the, uh, yeah, no, I'm not. It's fine. Yeah. yeah. But, um, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but looking at that whole, uh, you know, balancing privacy with, you know, I want my device to tell me uh, useful information. Sure. Again, whether it's, you know, a friend is nearby and, you know, we can hook up uh, or, uh, you know, there's a, you know, whatever, uh, you know, this, this store, this restaurant has a special on this or they, you know, that, that they think I'd really like or something. Like yeah. That. And there's some of that happening. Yeah. I mean, it's starting to happen more and more. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not really unique to the iPhone. I mean, you know, any, no. any, uh, any device that has GPS or, you know, that can tell where you are. Right, right. Um, and of course, you know, the, well, the camera, I mean, that's low hanging fruit. I mean, it well, is. well, they do, yeah. well, they do have, I mean, you know, on the high end phone, you know, it's a real, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you can do optical zoom. Sort of. Yeah. Uh, kind of. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I don't know if, I mean, heck, uh, most of the pictures that I take, uh, you know, the iPhone camera is fine. It's if fine. It's better. Yeah. I mean, it does, you know, the, the, it is fine. And I'm actually very impressed with it right up until I see pictures that are taken, you know, with like a, a, a camera that has a much bigger lens. It doesn't even necessarily need to be a DSLR. Right. But, you know, something with a, with a bigger lens and then you see like, oh, that's yeah. totally different. Well, yeah. You're not going to get you know, super depth of field. Just correct. There's no way to do that physically. No, no, you have to, right. You have to digitally sort of approximate it. Yeah. 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 But that could, right. I mean, there could be some technology that does that because that would be great if you could. And it, and it feels like the guts in there. I mean, what would happen if they put two cameras in, I'm not just talking one on each side, but you know, if you put two side by side, would that, allow you to do more depth of fields or digitally approximate depth of field. If you know, okay, I have these two lenses and they're a fixed distance apart. You know, can you do more of that? I don't, I think so. Probably. I mean, well, you know, they also had, 
Oh, I think they also had this light ray camera. Mm-hmm. You remember that? That 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 was kind of a. It never seemed to get a lot of traction here, but it, in theory, it would take a picture of all possible, yeah, all possible pictures, and then you could you could tweak it afterwards to get actual depth of field. Now, I think you're right that the camera is going to be. So th- this is interesting, you know, as we're talking about the the future of the iPhone, we're talking about the display, you know, the visual aspects of it, the display and the camera, right? Date, visual in and visual out and somehow, you know, totally evolving those, which makes sense. Um, it, the capabilities of the device, I think we'll, we'll continue to move. I, 3D touch is one of those things. I'm not, I don't think we've seen the best use case of it yet. Uh, it's relatively new, but not that new. Uh, you know, it, I'm I'm curious to see where that evolves. I'm not convinced that that's a, a technology for the ages. You know, but uh, but we'll see. I'm, uh, I, you know, it, it, uh, I'm going to skip the Mac for a second and just talk about wearables because wearables could become part of the discussion of you know enhancing the the video output of our of our iphone right i mean you know at at one extreme the whole vr thing is makes a big difference right even if you've just messed around i got one of those it's like 25 bucks or something the viewmaster thing that you put your phone in and it's so cool to you know look around like there was a 360 degree uh video of a paul mccartney concert and you're literally standing on stage and as you turn around mm-hmm. You see different guys and your iPhone can do this, you know, and pretty much anybody's iPhone can do it. Cause it's got a gyroscope in it and uh, you just run the right app and it, it plays you the video and you put it in, you know, either it's Google cardboard esque stuff. And like I said, I got the Viewmaster, but it's 25 bucks. It's the, it's one of the coolest things I've ever done. So there's that, right. And now that makes the screen bigger because you've, you're putting it much closer to your face, you know, um, so, th- so there's that, but you know, wearables in general could start to uh, do this. I mean, Google Glass, you know, that might the, the the thing I think about is okay, Apple's doing the watch, obviously, but I don't think it stops with just the watch. I think the watch will obviously evolve. I would like to see the watch evolve into something where it's a little more autonomous. The whole, it needs to be tethered to the phone. And I know it doesn't need to now. And we've already seen the watch get more autonomous, even just via software, but it needs a lot more of that. Um, and so, you know, but, but it can also be this, you know, it, it is the second screen for your iPhone as well. So, you know, a, a Apple glasses or Apple VR thing could be that, um, you know, it, get, it just gets very interesting. So, um, I am, I'm curious where that goes in, in terms of the wearables, because I think that, you know, it becomes this kind of holistic ecosystem in, in that sense. And, um, and so I, I don't think the, I don't think the watch is the last wearable that Apple will release. I think there's, I think there's another wearable in their, uh, in their future, you know, glasses or an ear thing or, you know, something uh, gets very interesting. Now, for both devices, now you know I saw some of this. I uh, uh, just went to a show, and I'm seeing this space evolving too. But it's it's really fragmented, and it applies to both the iPhone and the watch. Well, actually, the watch already kind of does it. But um, this whole wireless charging 
concept mm. is uh, very interesting. But other than the watch, I don't think any other Apple stuff really. Well, I, I think you can get some uh, kind of proprietary solutions if you get a yes. case. Yes. Um, but it's not built into the platform. And, uh, you know, so any sort of inductive or energy harvesting uh, technology um, that may be neat or just coming up with a better battery technology. I'm still hoping, uh, and you know, people, you know, it may sound crazy or insane, but a nuclear battery, seriously. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, we do. We need, we need a, 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 um, like a quantum leap in battery technology. There, there, there needs to be a breakthrough there. I mean, we're, you know, we're doing better, uh, but it, you know, it sort of saddens me. I understand why they, why they're doing it. Cause it's the best tech that exists. You know, that, that Tesla is, you know, like they've got that big gigafactory or whatever that builds more lithium ion batteries than all the other factories in the world combined. Right. Um, and it makes sense, but you know, that they're also working on like are in the R and D space, figuring out okay how can we get rid of lithium ion what's next and uh and and i i just you know i feel like we've waited so long for this like what what's the hold up henry uh but but yet there's still a hold up so yeah it it's interesting well there is i mean somebody either comes up with a new combination of metals that do something different though i I don't wonder if that's going to happen because yeah, right. figure it would have already. It, I mean, right. You know, that's the thing is it would have. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, we've went from NICAD to lithium ion and well, alkaline, right. To alkaline. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's just, something's got to, something's got to give there. So well, that's how I'm saying. If you could make a, a miniature controlled nuclear reaction. Yeah. Uh, you know, like a little portable sun and then just put that. <laughs> Put that in the phone. Put that in your pocket. Keep that near your head while you sleep at night. In theory, you should be able to do it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So let's talk about the Mac a little bit. Um, And, and, you know, it's it's a minority of Apple's sales, but it's growing, right? So, I I mean, I don't think the Mac is going anywhere, but I think it it, it evolves, especially in the, the portable section right the, i think it's weird that we have the macbook and the macbook air and the macbook pro, pro right the pro i get there's a reason for that and i think in five years we'll still have the pro in 10 i'm not sure to be quite honest but i think the pro lives um and and the next kind of change is going to be the, the air and the macbook need to find a home because it's weird that you've got the air that's not retina you know the macbook is the cpu is different between the two but do you really i mean do you need that distinction does the does the user like i mean i i like an i like the my air but it's three years old and and you know look it still functions fine right you know people keep computers and and ipads much longer than, than we used to. It used to be every two years you had to replace your computer, you know, in like the late nineties or whatever that, that went away. Right. Cause things are fast enough. And that's the thing. It's like, yeah, yeah, the MacBook's slower, but then, you know, if I was going to replace my air, but I like the screen, I like the size. Um, I'd probably just go with the MacBook. I don't, you know, it's fast enough. So I feel like there's, there's this nebulous sort of confusion between the air and the MacBook. And I feel like that needs to merge but I think when we talk about the Mac, we also have to talk about the iPad 
because the kind of low end, if you call it that laptop and the high end iPad are also on this path of, you know, potential convergence because you've got, you know, they're getting really close to each other. And, uh, and there was that interesting thing this week, right? Where there's, there's, uh, one patent that's been around for a while and then one that, that came out this week. And again, just because Apple patents something doesn't mean they're going to do anything with it. They just patented it. But, it, you know, you start looking and Jeff Gamut did a nice job combining the concept of a glass, a, a reconfigurable glass display in terms of what's on it. Not entirely different from what we have on the iPad in terms of, you know, your trackpad is here. Your keyboard is there. Your numeric keypad is there. And being able to move that around in the context of a laptop. But we do that already on the iPad, right? The keyboard comes up when you need it. You can get different types of keyboards depending on what you need. It's all very handy and you can do some trackpad stuff now too. And that gets really interesting. Um, so you take that patent and combine it with one where they had a glass surface, uh, but able to rearrange itself in terms of height. So you could have one section of the the surface be higher than another. So now you have the ability to have an on-the-fly self-configurable or software-configurable keyboard in terms of layout, but also in terms of tactile feel. So, you know, you, you can feel where the keys are. You can feel where the trackpad is. You can feel where the button is because these things are at different, you know, slightly different heights. So that starts to become interesting you know, what, where does that go? And does the smart keyboard sort of go away in favor of that when you get to this high end iPad, low end laptop thing that it's just interesting to, to, you know, to prognosticate about that. And I, I think we're going to, I think we're going to see some convergence there. I don't think the iPad is going away though. Um, I just don't think people need to buy them as frequently or upgrade them as frequently is a better, better way to say it. I certainly don't. Yeah, I'm with you. They, I think they're deviating a bit from, you know, the original idea is that we'd have, you know, consumer and pro. Mm -hmm. the, the 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 quadrants is that we're getting yeah. things that are, uh, and I agree with you. The, uh, I mean, I think they should still have the MacBook Pro for people that want lots of you know fast ports and and nice yep. processors, and then a. Uh, wimpier not that there's anything wrong with that and then a, a less powerful machine where people yeah you know for people that don't need all the juice and all that power right uh, and it's priced accordingly uh, and and weighs accordingly yeah well um, and yeah and the battery life is going to be longer on the on the lesser powered one and you know all of all of those sort of physical limitations um, become benefits when you do that yeah smaller screen so i'm with you i yeah. don't know if the macbook makes yeah it, 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 it overlaps the, with the air yeah i think a product there makes sense yeah yeah but it, i think it's more like i think the future looks more like the macbook than than the macbook air so yeah and then on the other side although i just got one i mean i think the mini is really neat for the money i mean you know i paid five something for this with, yeah uh, you know with uh, uh you know from the refurb store uh and i think it's a great value it's you know uh, has all the ports that I need and all the memory and all the all the stuff. Um, I I've heard from more than one person and I've seen some people comment as of late. Um, I'm not sure the pro. I, I think the latest realization of the pro was kind of a miss. 
the Mac Pro, you mean? Yes. The current, you know, yeah, yeah, tube yeah. one. Yeah. I honestly, the, the feedback that I've gotten from people is it doesn't really cut it as far as what, what I think pe- what people want in pro, right? It's been interesting. You know, I, I, I think there's a lot of people that have pros, but don't need them. They would be fine with, you know, a, a retina iMac because they've got plenty of horsepower now and, and, you know, all of that. Uh, but there are people, you know, that use pros in a, a very professional environment that need just gobs and gobs of extra horsepower. Yeah. I'm thinking like video production and and things like, Like, you know, high end stuff or render farms, you know, people that do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's interesting how Apple has approached that over the years. You know, it, it, we had various flavors of Mac pro. We had the X serve, right. That was, you know, could be used and was used in, in that environment because again, it was that sort of a thing. But, you know, and I feel like Apple doesn't want to stop serving that um, segment of its of its market as small as it is. It's it's an important one. And if Apple doesn't serve it, you know, there could be a trickle down effect there. So uh, I, I think they will continue to serve it. And I think they know that they have the ability to be a little experimental with it because it really is a a limited market. They know that there are, you know three points they need to hit in terms of performance and all of that. And price really isn't necessarily one of them. You know, these people that are using machines that need machines as opposed to want machines like that, uh, aren't really going to worry about the price as long as it's not just totally, uh, you know, out of the ballpark. But I feel like Apple gets to experiment a little bit there and, and showed us that with the last Mac pro or the latest Mac pro. It's like, yeah, we're going to have some fun with this one. And I think we're going to see that again with the Mac pro. I think they will continue to experiment uh, with that just for that, for that very reason. Like we know we'll, we'll get you the, we'll get you the speed and the features you need. And it's going to be kind of this cool, you know, sort of niche thing, but I think it becomes more and more niche. And, and I think it's hard for some people to get over that, to be quite honest. I, I see people saying, Oh, I, you know, the new Mac pro, I, I, I really want it, but it's like, yeah, but you're fine with an iMac. You're good. It's all good. No, I need it. Yeah. I'm that's a pro, man. Yeah. That, no, I, I get it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, we would, I, I, there, there's one question I want to ask you about here, John, uh, about the future, but, um, and then we'll wrap up, but we would love to hear from you about the future too. Uh, feedback at MacGeekup.com, of course, is, is where you do that. But uh, did you say Feedback at MacGeekup.com. I did say feedback at com. That's right. Unless you're a premium listener, then send us feedback at, uh, at premium at MacGeekup.com. And you can learn about premium at MacGeekup.com. And really, you know, 600 episodes, uh, there are a lot of reasons we made it here. You folks are a huge part of it. And I mean, all of you sending in your questions, continually giving us uh feedback and being interested in what we do and, uh, and, and really creating content for the show, right? Because you folks do that. We, we sort of pull it together and organize it, but, uh, but you're the ones that create the content. So really thank you, um, for that. And, and then, you know, the subset of you that, uh, are premium members, you're another huge part of why 600 episodes uh, could happen because without, uh, without the support of you know both you and our sponsors, we just we just wouldn't be here. So, it's it's 
it's a whole package deal and, and we're all a part of it. So thank you um, for, for the part that you all play in, in that. And we're going to keep doing this. It's not, you know, this is not a swan song, obviously, but as we look to the future, John, iCloud, I'm curious as to your <laughs> thoughts on, on my this. It's on my list. <laughs> yeah, we can't we can't leave without talking about this. We will revisit this, you know, kind of the future of topic in the in the future, and maybe we'll do that, you know, on our 11th uh, anniversary show, and maybe we'll have some guests on. Although it could be the day of WWDC's announcement, so uh, it it might be interesting to have guests on, and just logistically, it might be a problem. But we'll we'll you will revisit this topic at some point and maybe bring some people in. But I would love to bring your thoughts in too. So. Uh, so send them, but right now I do want to talk about iCloud, John. What do you think? Oh man, <laughs> I know. <laughs> the thing is, you know, Apple tries to get it right, and it's been through numerous iterations. It was, you know, Mobile Me, and yeah, or you know, Dot Mac, Dot Mac, yeah, and Mobile Me, then iCloud. Um, well, it was it was a, a, a X Tools first, right? Oh, maybe. Right. I think so. Yeah, I feel, I, I feel like, yeah, I mean, it was all, but it's been all kinds of things. I don't think the cloud goes away, but I also think, I mean, Apple's got to do a better job either convincing people of the value proposition or lowering the the price. I mean, this whole, you get five gigs for free, that's not enough to to really, I don't know, it's iTools is what it was. Thank you, Furbies, uh, in the chat room. But yeah, I, I just feel like, man, well, it's, I don't know. For a lot of people, I think it's enough. But for some, it's not. Like, I, I know people that would, um, you know, would hit the limit. It's really easy to hit the limit. That's the problem. You know, and it, it's frustrating when you look at, you know, Google. I mean, I know it's different, right? But, you know, Flickr actually stopped giving, well, they still give away your free, um, one terabyte of storage, but the Flickr uploader now is became a premium function, right. For pictures and, and all of that. So yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess either the market needs to come to where Apple is or Apple needs to go to where the market is in terms of that price to storage. Well, thing. Um, well, you know where the market's going a, a, a minor tangent, but you may have seen me talk about this during the week. Um, yet another cloud service that I was, uh, uh, part of yeah decided that they wanted money yeah so i'm done uh, I, I deleted bitcasa oh, all yeah, of a sudden yeah. i got a notification and they're like um yeah you're now on the uh, 60 day free trial right so pony up man yeah it's like after See, all i've done for you here's the thing though <laughs> and i think the cloud needs to move home um apple has uh, is obviously a, a company that thinks a lot about protecting its its customers' privacy, right? And allowing their customers to protect their privacy. But it's really weird, right? There's no, like I have all of these devices here that let me store my data where I want to store it in a, you know, in a box that I can touch, the Synology, the transporter, right? All that stuff. Um, and yet access that data from wherever I am on the planet. Why isn't Apple in that game? You know, we've got the time capsule and it's like every one of those things that comes out when they revise it, it's like, yep, you missed it again. You've got, you know, it's a box connected to the network with a CPU 
and a hard drive in it. Like guys, you, you need to write the software that ties all three of those things together in a very accessible way. And don't, it's such a, a dumb device, right? In that it, it's not smart. It doesn't do the things that it could do. It, it's really no different other than the number of drives that's in it. It's no different than my Synology, right? It's a box connected to the network with a CPU and a hard drive or some hard drives. And yet my Synology can serve video I, to anywhere. Like I can be in a hotel room and say, hey, I'm getting on a plane in the morning. I want to download this movie from my Synology to my lap, to my iPad. And it does it without like, I don't have to jump through a lot of hoops to make that happen. It's just, you know, it works. So I, I well, feel you can like, kind of do that with, with back to my Mac. In theory, right? From your iPad? No. Oh, no. No. No, you're right. I know. That's the thing. It's like, yeah, it it doesn't necessarily need to be the time capsule. It could be the Mac in your house that does this and just wakes up intelligently and, and serves out media and then goes back to sleep. It, whatever it is, we have these devices and Apple just hasn't written the software for it. And it, it drives me a little bit crazy um, that we don't. That, that, you know, it just doesn't make sense because Apple, like there's nothing, no cloud service more secure than the one that you control the box and you can just unplug the network from the box if you want and smash it with a sledgehammer if you want, right? That, you know where your data is. So I feel like, I feel like Apple might get there. It would make sense because, you know, I want to store my photo. I want to use iCloud photo library, but I have more than enough storage here. I don't need to pay Apple every month for storage. Just give me the box. And now it's truly private. It serves all of these masters at once. So, Yeah. All I wish as far as their ecosystem. So number one, the, um, and it's a combination of things. I'll, I'll lump them together, but iCloud and Apple ID, uh, especially with what I just ran into, yeah. Yeah. to get into a state where, I can't even log in and they don't tell me why is mm -hmm. like, no guys. Yeah. Really? It's uh, and, and one time I had the similar, it, it was iCloud specific is that I tried to log in and they were like, Nope, wrong password. And I'm like, no, that's the right password. And it, my Apple ID and, and I'll lump Apple ID into this too, because a lot of people uh, kind of shake their fist at Apple ID because they're, restrictions and you know what email address can you use and and the inability to you know combine accounts I, i've seen that's a big uh request from some people is yeah i get these two apple ids can i kind of lump them together as far as what they can do and it's like no not really <laughs> yeah it's crazy so um that's all i got there yeah. os 10 i got one thing for os 10 yeah 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 zfs Let's do it. Sure. They need to build... A lot um, of people suggest that ZFS is a uh, more modern file system than HFS and, and has a lot of nice features that uh, I think would make... Using a Mac. And, and I think there's an open source version if you want to fiddle with it. But, um, oh, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Time Machine doesn't work on ZFS, but... Um, it, I mean, they would, have to, re they would yeah, have to re-roll it, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you want to call us, 224-888-GEEK is the right number. John Geek is? It has and always will be 4333. 
five. You got it. I want to thank, uh, we've already sent out a lot of thanks for this episode, but I want to thank Cashfly. They've been with us for a long, long time, providing all the bandwidth that gets the show from us to you. Cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com. And, uh, and all of our sponsors, of course, Gazelle and Barebones that we mentioned earlier in this episode, the folks at Smile Software, at, or Smile, at SmileSoftware.com, uh, have been with us for a long time. The people at Squarespace, squarespace.com slash MGG, they've been with us for a long time too. Otherworld Computing, one of our favorite companies as well, at MaxSales.com, and Casper, they're actually on board for the whole year here, so Casper.com slash MGG. Thanks to everybody. Thanks to you. Thanks, John. Thanks for 600 fun episodes. Oh, thank you. Yeah, you bet, man. We're, uh, looking forward to the next 600. Yeah. So, so we can look forward to another 600. Do you, do you have any, any piece of advice, my friend? Yeah, we all need to follow this. This is like one of the three things that we need to make sure that we not only learn, but practice every week. And that is, whatever you do... Don't get caught. Made up.